Right, Genesis chapter 14, verse 11 through the end. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. That would be the four kings from Babylon. And they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kalamadear, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said unto the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portion." Thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you that we have your word that we might look into with the grace of thy Holy Spirit and understand things about you, things about Christ, things that thou hast done to redeem us unto thyself, that we might fully enjoy you forever. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we'll pick up where we left off from last week with respect to this battle that took place between the four kings which had come down from Babylon against the five kings that were in that area down around the Dead Sea, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the coast round about. Abraham, or excuse me, Abraham, which we can appreciate, is living peaceably amongst his neighbors. And that, I think, we should appreciate the promise that was made to him back in Genesis chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 3, where the Lord says that he will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. Speaking, of course, in a superficial way that if you treat Abram well, then things will go well for you. And if not, then things will not go well for you. So he's currently living peaceably with the people that are round about him. In Proverbs 16, verse 7 The Lord says that when a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace. And so we should appreciate that Abram is living peaceably with the people that are around about him. He's been sanctified and removed from the world by the grace of God, just as indeed we all have. And when we are living peaceably with the people around us, that's indicative, of course, that that he is pleased with the way that we are doing things. But you don't want to take that too far 
because we can also appreciate some other things it says in scriptures, and I will get to that in, in a minute. But there he is. He's at the plain or Oak of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and he's living amongst the Amorites, which uh, we know from Genesis chapter 15, verse 15, that they are the enemies of God. So right now he's confederate with three of them, but he's presently living peaceably um, with them. In Genesis 15, 15, the Lord tells us that the people of Abraham will go into Egypt and they'll be in bondage there a certain number of years. But it says um, in the, actually verse 16, it says, but in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, meaning the Hebrews will come out of Egypt, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. When such a time as the iniquity of the Amorites is full, God will bring the Hebrews back in, the Israelites in, and they will um, destroy the Amorites. But right now he's enjoying a peaceful relationship with them. Now, in Genesis chapter 14, the Lord tells us a number of times that there are four kings at war against five kings. And if you've studied anything about military conflict, you know that the advantage is always given to the home team because they don't have to work out a logistics trail to get all of their men and armament and weaponry and whatever food might be required to, to keep them um, vigorous from where they have launched from to where they are going to fight the battle. And typically in times like this, they would eat things that they would find on the way so that they might... Um, not have to carry all those foods with them. So you have four kings against five. They are outnumbered. They have come from a great distance, so they have a logistical issue. They've got fatigue on them, and they've been conquering people all of the way down. And so if you were to bet on who was going to win the battle, I would put my money on the five kings, unless I'd read Genesis chapter 9, where the Lord tells me that the Hamites will be servants of the Shemites. And so I would know from the word of God that the Babylonians are going to be victorious. The four kings are going to win this battle. It always goes God's way, no matter what we might think about the way things are, but it always goes uh, God's way. Whatever things he sets forth us in scripture, he tells us the beginning from the end and what things will happen uh, before they've come to pass. And it says that he calls things completed, though they not even have uh, been started yet. He said that Abraham was a, a father of many nations, and yet he had not had a child when the Lord said that. Um, I've made a reference to a verse here that I want to take a look at, and I don't even recall why I had done that. Um, oh, I've already quoted it. When God's, uh, when man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. So um, uh, we can appreciate that that's taking place with respect to Abram's life. So all things are subject to the sovereignty of God, and all things will go his way. Now, I said that when a man's ways please the Lord, that he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. But there is also... Um, the rule that the Lord says that all that will live godly will suffer persecution. So if you're living a godly life, you are clearly living in a manner that would please the Lord. But nevertheless, you will suffer uh, persecution. So we can expect that as, as well. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, the Lord tells us that we should not think this a strange thing. So I'm saying this in the context of you would not think it a strange thing that the four kings would overcome the five kings because God has ordained it as such. You should not think it a strange thing that you suffer persecution for righteousness sake because the Lord has told you that not only in the Beatitudes but what I just um, quoted to you from 2 Timothy 3.12. In 1 Peter 4.12 the Lord tells us that think it, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. So when you find yourself in a trial, you ought not to think to yourself, well, why is this happening to me? Why me? Well, why you? Because you're God's servant. 
Why you? Because you're one of the elect. That is why you are suffering this particular trial. And you should know that that trial comes from the Lord. In verse 19 of 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. And so when you're suffering these trials, you know that, the, that it is of the Lord that you are suffering them and that you should not think it a strange thing at all. So our... Um, the protagonist of our story here, Abram, is going to suffer a trial, but not in the way that you might think. It's going to come when he returns from the slaughter, not when he's on his way to the slaughter. So what we have here, again, as we opened up, is that Abram is in communion with God at an altar. And so uh, we can appreciate that he's strengthened by virtue of his communion with God. And this we should all appreciate and enjoy as Christians, that when you are on your knees, when you are praying with the Lord, when you are reading his word, when you are in communion with him you are strengthened against the things of this, um, of this world. And so having been sanctified by God, he is an ambassador under God, and he is living amongst the people peacefully. We know that the Lord has blessed him. Back in chapter 13, verse 2, we read, quote, And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And so the Lord is blessing him as he said he would bless him. And Abram appreciates that it's from the Lord. We know that, by the way, he's going to answer the king of Sodom. But we also can appreciate what things the Lord tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. In Deuteronomy 8, 18, when the Lord says, Thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth the power to get wealth. It is he that giveth the power to get wealth. So what um, riches Abraham has, he would appreciate that it comes from the Lord. Whatever we have, whatever, however the Lord has prospered us, we would give glory to the Lord and give thanks to him. He who is the author and finisher of our faith has given us everything that we need um, to, um, to live in this world and to honor and glorify him and do the work that he would have us to do. So Abraham would appreciate that what he has comes from the hand of God. Now, he uses the word, that we have the power to get wealth and that he gives us that power to get wealth. And so we should appreciate that whatever we have belongs to the Lord. It's not actually ours. It didn't belong to the Lord at one time and then he gave it to us. And so like now it's our personal possession. But we should always view ourselves as stewards of God. In Genesis chapter 14, he says twice, once in verse 19, that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. Same thing in verse 22. First Melchizedek says it, and then Abram says it. God is the possessor of heaven and earth. That doesn't mean he possesses everything except for what he gave you and me. He possesses everything. Uh, we owe nothing. We are stewards of God's resources. And so what we do have, we are to use for God's glory. They belong to God and so uh, we are to use it as though we are stewards of it, which is, he's going to go into that in chapter 15, about how Abram has a steward of his house. And so the steward, of course, has a responsibility to properly use the things that, are, um, that belong to the master of the house. So we have a responsibility to use those things that the Lord has given us to his glory. So 
Abram, living peaceably, is not getting caught up in the affairs of this world, as we should not get caught up in the affairs of this world. However, it is because of his brother, and I'll put that in air quotes because that's how he's identified in this section here, because of his brother, Lot, who has been living amongst the wicked people of Sodom, he's now taken into bondage, into captivity by Babylon, which represents false religion. You know that from the Tower of Babel and also from the book of Revelation. And it is against false religion that Abraham goes to war with. And this is typical in terms of what we face in our lives. Generally speaking, as Christians, we go to war against false religion. We pity those people that are caught up in the wickedness of this world, that are in bondage you know, to their sin, bondage to Satan, and bondage to the lusts of the flesh. We pity them, but we actually go to war with false religion. If you think about what arguments you've had with various peoples over time, is it not generally against false doctrine? The things that they would put forth with respect to teaching about Christ, those things that are false. The greatest battle is always fought over this issue of grace versus works-based salvation. We quoted this verse last week, which I'll quote again here, but it's from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse 3, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We do not go out with a physical weapon to exhort somebody to the obedience of Christ, to get a confession out of somebody like took place in the Middle Ages during the um, um, Crusades when they went, went out with weapons. And I think you would appreciate that that was really a political war and not really a religious one. It was a political war under the guise of a religious war, endeavoring to free up real estate for the benefit of uh, Rome uh, versus the uh, Muslim country. So our weapons of our warfare are not cardinal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And so what do we do? We go forth with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Bible, which is truth, and it is through those means uh, that we endeavor to bring people out of false religion and into the true light of Christ. And so we who love God as ambassadors for Christ, we love his word and we love his people, and we have a zeal for the truth as it is in Christ. And so we go to war with the enemies of Christ in the guise of those that um, cloak themselves in false religion. And so we see Abraham goes to war with the four kings. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 20, they are described as enemies, though they've not harmed him. He's living amongst enemies, and so we see that the Lord here, he says that he has given them victory he has delivered thine enemies into thine, thine hands. So um, last week, in this context here, we saw Abram as a type of Christ. We spoke about those that were born in his house. Those ones are led forth in the Hebrew and instructed by him as typifying born-again saints. And we looked at Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21 in that context. But there's another interesting parallel that comes forth when we look at this section here about those that are born in his house. Um, we should appreciate that he's going out to battle against four kings which have proven themselves unconquerable up to this point with 318 people that are born in his house. So we can appreciate that clearly God has blessed him and he has a very large house if he can take 318 young men out to go forth to war. 
Now, the fact that he can take this number of people that are born in his house to go to war suggests uh, that he has a great deal of power over them um, and that uh, he can have them really hazard their lives um, at his uh, bequest. Um, when we look at that, we see, we see elements that appear in the law in the book of, I think it's in the book of Exodus. Yeah, it's Exodus. We'll take a look at that in a minute. We see elements of the law that takes place in Exodus which um, teach us about Christ and his relationship with uh, you and me. All throughout the book of Genesis, we're going to find shadows and we're going to find um, references and allusions to the things that take place in the law, which, of course, teach us about Christ. And this is one section here. So you've got 318 people born in his house over which he really exercises the life, um, the power of life and death, meaning in so much as he can bring them out uh, to have them fight a war. These things, of course, are going to teach us about Christ and his church. So in Exodus chapter 21... I'm going to read the first six verses there, and you, I hope you would see in this what Christ has done for his church and what he, um, the power and authority that he exercises, that God the Father exercises over the people that are born in his house. In uh, chapter 21, verse 1 of Exodus, we read, Now these are the judgments which thou hast set before them, meaning before the people. If thou buy a Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. This is what you do with a Hebrew servant, not necessarily one from another nation. But nevertheless, we, we find um, gospel truths herein. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. So in other words, if you buy a servant and he comes in as a single man, then when he departs, he departs a single man. If he comes in when he's, as, as a married man, then when he departs, he departs as a married man. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. That seems kind of interesting. So again, he comes in a single man, but as the um, owner of the servant, if you give him a wife within your household and, and they bear children, you own the wife and you own the children. They belong to you, and he departs by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Now the fellow who's come in has had born children, been given a wife by the uh, owner, and he decides that he does not want to go out free. He does not want to go out a single man. He wants to stay under the house of the master, and he wants to remain with his wife and his children. Verse 6, Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So obviously the wife and the children are forever the um, subject to that particular master, and the individual who was brought in decided he wants to remain a servant forever. He's taken to the doorpost, and they drive an awl through his ear and nail him to the doorpost, and that means that he desires to stay in that household with his um, wife and with his children forever. Now let me read verse 5 again, and I will change some of the words in it. And if Christ shall plainly say, I love my heavenly Father, my church, and the saints, I will not go out free. And this is what Christ did. The Lord gave him a 
church, a wife, which is the church, and he, uh, they bore children. That would be the various saints um, that have been uh, begotten through the preaching of the gospel. And so what did Christ do? He did what is written in Psalm 40, verse 6, where we read in Psalm 40, verse 6, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering thou hast not required. Thine ear hast thou opened. In other words, Christ said, I love my wife, I love the church, I love the saints, and therefore I will remain in this house forever. And so the Father opened his ear, driving an awl through it and nailing it to the doorpost. This taking place, uh, um, parabolically speaking, when the Lord was nailed to the cross. And so we see here in the... um, In the life of Abraham, with respect to these 318 people that are born in his house, we see this allusion to what's written in Exodus 21, which helps us appreciate the relationship between God the Father and the church and the saints and the the servant that was brought in, which would be Christ himself. So, again, that Abraham can take these uh, 318 young men to war. They are born in his house. And uh, it's suggestive that they will serve him forever, certainly unto death, typifying our service to God as those born in his house. So this section here helps us to appreciate um, the gospel. Now, when we get to verse 17 of Genesis chapter 14, uh, we see that the victory uh, has been uh, complete. Uh, The armies of Babylon are slaughtered. We see that language. Also, we see that language in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, that our deacon read for us this morning. All the peoples and all the goods are all recovered. Everything is recovered for the sake of one person, Abraham's brother Lot. Everything was recovered for the benefit of one person, Abraham's brother Lot. And I think we should appreciate that God does the same for us. He will upend the entire world. He will destroy nations and peoples and institutions for the sake of one of Christ's brothers. So too, will he spare a city? Will he spare a people for the sake of one of Christ's brothers? And you'll see this when we get to the destruction of Sodom. It was for the sake of one person that God let that city uh, last as long as he did, and he destroyed it, removing one person from that city, the one righteous one. Only Lot is referred to as being just and righteous before the Lord. We read about that in 2 Peter um, chapter 2. And so we can appreciate that God will let this earth remain and let everybody enjoy the general blessings of God until such time as the last of God's saints, the last of his elects, comes into the fold, just like we saw that with respect to Noah's Ark, until the last one comes in, and then he will destroy the entire planet, creating a new heavens and a new earth. And so, uh, for the sake of God's people, for the sake of God's people, does do all things literally revolve around um, um, his mercy and his grace and his will for his people. Um, it is for the sake of God's people that he suffers these various people to live on the land. And I'm speaking of the Amorites. We read about the Amorites in verse 13 and in verse 24 of Genesis chapter 14. And then we read in Genesis 15:16 that I read before um, that they are going to be destroyed when their iniquity is full, when God brings his people into uh, the promised land. So these people are living 
by virtue of God's grace and mercy that he has for Abram. He's letting them remain there. Um, and they will remain there until such time as he brings his people into it. So the fact that they're in there is really a grace not only to them, but it's a grace for the Hebrews because they're, they're building houses, they're digging wells, and they're planting vineyards, which God is going to then give to the uh, Israelites when um, he brings them in. So in verse 17, we uh, read about Abraham, about how he is met first with the king of Sodom when he returns from the slaughter of Keldeleomar. And the kings of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Keldeleomar and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheba, which is the king's dale. And so we see that he's met first. They first make mention of the king of Sodom coming out to meet him after returning from the slaughter. And then immediately this individual, uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem, uh, king of peace, king of righteousness, intercedes and meets with Abram there. Because it is here where Abram's going to be tried. He's going to be tempted to keep the goods of the world, the things that people covet and the things that people lust after. So he's having this temptation set before him. And God, we can appreciate, who is certainly his advocate, has Melchizedek come and meet with him first. Now, we read that the king of Sodom, who in this context would typify Satan, he wants the people, the souls in the Hebrew, the souls of the, of the people is what he wants. What he wants is he wants disciples. He wants people to worship him. He wants people to uh, pay tithes unto him, pay tribute unto him. He wants people to serve him. He wants to be lifted up like the Most High. I'm, I'm interjecting things about Satan there, but that's what he wants. He wants the souls of the people. And so we should appreciate another principle in Scripture is the battle is not for your stuff, it's for your soul. In 2 Corinthians twelve fourteen, the Lord teaches us about bringing the gospel um, via the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, that he says, I seek not yours, but you. God doesn't want your stuff. He is already the possessor of the heaven and the earth. What he wants, of course, is he wants your hearts. He wants our hearts, and he doesn't want our stuff. And we know that he takes out our stony heart and gives us a heart of flesh. He gives us a new heart, and that's what he wants. When you read about loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, the word heart always comes first. What the Lord wants is our heart. And so Abraham is tempted. And we can appreciate that this other principle here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Verses 13 and 14, we read, There hath no temptation or trial taken you, such as is common to man. We all face these trials and temptations. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but what, what will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that, it may, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, dearly, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. So here we have a wonderful example of how Abram is being tempted now with things that others people idolize, the goods and material things of this world. And Melchizedek, who is a type of Christ, does what? He comes to him and he sets Christ before um, Abram in the person or in the uh, typology of bread and wine. You read about that in verse 18, that he sets before him bread and wine. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God. I'm sorry, the verse above it, 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. I find that very interesting that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
we would read about suffering temptation and not uh, and the Lord not letting us uh, suffer beyond which uh, being tempted beyond which we might bear, but will with it make a way out. If you turn one more page, you find yourself in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Lord gives us the Lord's table, which is exactly what we see here with respect to um, Melchizedek. He says before him the Lord's table. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, he says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he comes. Now it's very interesting that Melchizedek would set um, bread and wine before um, Abram. The Lord has not come yet, he has not died yet, yet he is described as the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And that sacrifice was typified by what the Lord did back in Genesis chapter 3. And Abel sacrificed in Genesis chapter 4. And Noah sacrificed in Genesis chapter 9. And Abraham sacrificed in Genesis chapter 12 and in chapter 13. And so this idea of a substitutionary offering is not novel, nor is it new to Abram. He understands what this is all about, or he should understand what this is all about. And so Melchizedek is sending something very very plain and clear before him in terms of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ that he should have had some appreciation for, um, having uh, offered up at an altar of God on two separate occasions, or three separate occasions, uh, rather, and looking back to all of the substitutionary offerings that had taken place uh, prior to that. So this is not a this this should not be something that um, would be completely foreign to him. That that um, Melchizedek would be pointing forward to the to Christ coming, and that he would offer up his body and his blood as the uh, anti-type of the offering that um, Abram had been engaged with um, since Genesis chapter 12. Now, having been ministered to and strengthened and encouraged by Melchizedek to look to Christ, um, we should appreciate that he responds the way he does then, that he will not take anything that might give the king of Sodom a foothold in claiming a relationship with him. He's not going to give the king of Sodom anything that would give him a foothold in claiming a relationship with him. That he got anything of this from this world from um, the king of Sodom or from those people as opposed to receiving all of that he has from God himself. So everything that he has received, he acknowledges, Abram acknowledges as having been given to him from the Lord, who is the possessor of heaven and earth. And as such, then he will give the Lord, via tithes to Melchizedek, tithes of all. Tithes of all that he has. We read in Genesis 13 that he was rich. He's going to give tithes of everything that he has. And tithes also of what goods were returned from the four kings. And Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4 specifically says that he gave tithes of the spoils. So he's giving tithes of everything. So whether or not you have a relationship uh, with God, we as uh, 
ambassadors of God, as Abraham is, act as a mediator between the world and God. And so he's going to give tithes of all the goods that came out of Sodom, as well as all of the things that the Lord uh, had given to him. So all the glory he's going to give to God. He's going to give the glory for what things that he's received. It is God that has made him rich, and he's going to give God the glory for having made him victorious in the battle. And we read in other scriptures uh, about how that is always true. It says, by strength shall no man prevail. By strength shall no man prevail. And the Lord says in Zechariah, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. It is through the Lord um, working and interceding on our behalf that giants are overcome, that people are overcome, that we're able to be victorious in anything that we're engaged in, whether it be a court petition uh, litigation. It is God who's going to give us the victory or not. No matter what you're engaged in, whatever your disagreements are with people, it is the Lord that will have to turn their hearts to grant you uh, the victory. In verse 20 of Genesis 14, um, it is clearly said that it is God who has delivered thine enemies into thy hand. It is God who delivered the enemies of Abraham. Abraham into the hands of Abraham. So all the glory goes to God, and we should appreciate that all the peoples round about have been blessed by virtue of the victory that Abram had over the um, Babylonians, what they had come down. So, and that victory was wrought through Abram and those that were born in his house. And so everybody should appreciate he gives the glory to God, and what peace they have now um, and rest they have from the Babylonians, they have by virtue of the grace of God working through his people. Um, so he gives everything. He um, says he'll take nothing, with the exception of a couple of things. One is the food that was for the young men, and the portion that would fall to the Amorites, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. And so there's a couple of principles that are brought forth here. The first one is in First Timothy five eighteen, where it says, "Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labor is worthy of his wages." And so with that principle in view, the Lord says, hey, these men went and fought. They needed to eat. We're not going to muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. They are going to get to partake of the things that were necessary to have them go wage this war. And we will give the portion uh, to Anar, Eshkel, and Mamre because they took part in it as well. So they can have their portion. So that's the first principle is that you shall not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn and a labor is worthy of his wages. And the second principle here is that we ought never to hold other Christians, our people, to our standards in terms of the degree to which their heart knows God. So you have to be careful that if you're a mature and strong Christian, you don't um, try to force somebody who's only able to, let's say, eat uh, drink milk to the same standards as you who are able to eat milk and vice versa. We know um, that in... Uh, the scripture tells us those things. And so I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, where he uh, stoutly warns us against this very thing about comparing ourselves with each other. And he says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves are comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. In other words, whatever standards that you hold for yourself, you're comparing your standards and how you behave and conduct yourself with the Lord, uh, contrasting it and comparing it with the way other people uh, compare, uh, however, how they are behaving and operating uh, themselves 
uh, before the Lord. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, um, the Lord says, For I say, and I appreciate this qualifier, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God hath dealt to every man the measure of grace. So God gives each person a measure of grace, and that's the envelope that they operate within as Christians. In Ephesians 4, 7, something very similar, every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And so that is the way we operate. Uh, as Christians, we uh, would be um, we would defer one to another and have grace one to another and appreciate that a younger Christian might stumble in an area that you wouldn't stumble and you wouldn't want to um, judge them harshly because of it. You should appreciate that they have not been given the measure of grace or the measure of Christ that you have been given. And so here we have Abraham who's been blessed, who's been at um, partaking of the wine and bread as set forth by Melchizedek. Um, nobody else is at the table with him. He's there by himself, even though there are those that are around him. And so he can appreciate that he has a relationship with God that the other people don't have. And so while he'll, he won't take anything from the king of Sodom, he's not going to judge those that do take from the king of Sodom and having waged war against um, the four kings and been victorious. And so he says um, he would take nothing save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. There is a portion that is due to them. Let them take their portion, though I will not take it. Um, so as we close out Genesis chapter 14, we can appreciate that Abraham here is strengthened by what I would call a type of Christ. He's strengthened by Melchizedek, who is a type of Christ, um, of whom it is said what is taking place here is that as in Psalm 23, uh, verse 5, it says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And so there Abram has had a table set before him in the presence of his enemies. All of these people that are around him, with the exception of the king of, of Salem, are his enemies because they are outside of, of Christ. And so I pray that this is what church is for us every Sunday, that the Lord is setting a table um, before us in the presence of our enemies. And uh, he is strengthening us and encouraging us and pointing us ever to Christ himself as Melchizedek pointed Abram to Christ, offering of Christ through the bread and the wine that was set before him. Amen. Amen.